Father, we bow our hearts, we bow our heads right now to recognize the magnificence of that truth, that great are you, Lord. Father, we are not great. All our accomplishments mean nothing compared to the awesome power and majesty and glory and dominion of our God. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for making a way to worship you. And Father, this is just a taste of what all who have confessed you as their Lord and Savior and repented of their sin will be doing for eternity. Oh Lord, hasten the day. Hasten the day when this glimpse becomes a reality. Father, stir our hearts today for more of you and less of us. You must increase. We must decrease. Our desire for the world, our agendas, all of our stuff, we just lay it at the foot of the altar of Jesus Christ today and say more of you and less of us, Lord Jesus. And for whatever distractions we came in here with today, we'd be able to leave those at the foot of the cross, casting our anxiety on you because you care for us. And you desire to meet us right now, right where we're at. No one's here by accident. And so say what you want to say to each person, why you brought them here, God. And I pray right now as your people, we would just willingly and quickly humble ourselves under the authority of your word. No prideful rejection of it or, or stiffening our necks against it, but God saying willingly, like, you are God and I am not and I need you. Please change me. Would you please do a saving and sanctifying work in your house today? Guard my mouth from error, Jesus Christ, and say what you want to say, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, loved ones, it's great to be back with you. Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. This is uh, the second last message in our series, verse by verse, line by line, through the Gospel of John, at which point at the end of chapter 4, we will be taking a break until this fall coming up, and we will carry on in the next chunk of chapters, but let's bring us up to snuff right now. John chapter 4, 27 to 42. If you, first off, if you do not have a Bible, please put your hand up right now. Our ushers are coming forward. We want to drop one in your lap so that you can follow along with God's word as it is being preached today, and if you do not have a Bible at home, please take that as a gift for you so you can continue to study God's word on your own time, and the text for today is on page 519 of those Bibles that we are handing out right now. Page 519. So let's get a recap of how we got to this point. We're continuing in chapter 4 where Jesus has traveled to Samaria. He's actually on his way to Galilee, as we will see next week, but he makes a pit stop in Samaria. And you'll see a map here. So he's traveled from the Judean wilderness by the fords of Jericho, and now he's moving up to this little town in Samaria called Sychar. And he stops at a place called Jacob's Well, where he met a Samaritan woman, and he starts to engage in what is the first instance, so blessed by this this week, the first instance of cross-cultural evangelism that we read about in the New Testament. This is it, right here. 
Beautiful, beautiful. And he has a conversation with her about what it means to have salvation in him, find living water in him. And he reveals to her just a stunning statement that we looked at last week in verse 26, that he is the Messiah. And upon revealing that to this woman, she's saved. And today, we will see the impact of this woman's salvation in her life. And through it, we will clearly see that a life that has truly been saved by Christ is called to be a faithful witness for Christ. Let me say it again. A life that has been truly saved by Christ is called to be a faithful witness for Christ. And you can look at that in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus says to the disciples and others who were gathered there before he sends them out on this mission he says and you will receive power power of the holy spirit dunamai power it's okay it's where we get our greek word di- or dynamite from our english word dynamite comes from that you will receive power when the holy spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses there's the call there's the call you will be my witnesses in jerusalem judea samaria and to the ends of the earth but that begs the question right here what does the life of a faithful witness for christ look like What does it look like? We get a lot of perspectives these days on what it could or should look like. But what does God say in his word? How are we called to witness or share the gospel with others? How are we called to do that? What what has God given us? What has he shown us in his word? Well, first off, we need some clarity on what we're talking about here. We're talking about evangelism. We're talking about evangelism. Let's get a definition of evangelism. Bare bones, very basic, yet very fundamental definition. Evangelism is the spreading of the gospel by public preaching or personal witness. Okay, even dictionary.com describes it this way, and he does a pretty good job. Okay, the spreading of the gospel by public preaching or personal witness. Now, now there's a problem. Some of us in this room might be like, well, yeah, totally. I mean, that's what we're called to. Others be like, "Mm, maybe, I don't know. Here's the problem that we see in culture today. A growing number of professing Christians believe it is wrong to evangelize. You say it again. That should be stunning to us. A growing number of professing Christians believe it's wrong to evangelize. You say, Pastor Ray, where are you pulling that stat out of? Okay, let's talk about God's timing. February 6, 2019, the Barna Research Institute released its latest study on evangelism. And it found, let me get the stat right here, it found that 47% of those professing born-again believers in their ages 20s and 30s say it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone in hopes they will one day share the same faith. We can pick our jaws up. But this is the reality. 47% of 20 and 30 year olds professing faith in Jesus Christ believe it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone in hopes they will one day share the same faith. Let's break that down. Let's go behind that response. Let's think, loved ones. Here's what they're saying. It is wrong to live a life that publicly declares that salvation is in Jesus Christ alone so that one may be saved through him. That's what you're saying. 
Are you sure you want to go there? Are you sure that's what God's word says? It's this deception. It's a buying into the culture of, well, you believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe, and we'll both end up good. It doesn't work like that. We have to realize, loved ones, that that mindset is in direct opposition to what we see in God's word for what a faithful witness is to be and how they are to live. Loved ones, we are called to evangelize. We are called to evangelize. And so that begs the question, what does the life of a faithful witness for Christ look like? What does God's word tell us? Well, today in our text, no coincidence on this timing. Today we will see two truths we must embrace if we are to be faithful in our witness for the gospel and see others come to faith in Christ through it. You guys ready? You guys ready? Here we go. Verses 27 to 38. Let's stand as to honor the authority of God's word as we read through it. John chapter 4, verses 27 to 38. Just then, his disciples came back. This is Jesus they're talking about. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, loved ones, the first thing we see here in the first few verses is this. We are called to evangelize for Christ by living a life of invitation to Christ. We are called to evangelize for Christ by living a life of invitation to Christ. And the question that we are confronted with from this truth is this. God calls me to invite others to him. Does my life reflect this? God calls me to invite others to him. Does my life reflect this? Look at verses 27 to 30. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, come. Can you hear the excitement here, loved ones? Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Let's get some context. You see, in verse 27, recall just before this, uh, the Samaritan woman met Jesus at the well, and his disciples had gone into town to buy food, as we read about in verse 8. So what we have to realize here is the disciples had no idea this conversation over the last number of verses was even happening. They were in town buying food. 
All right, while Jesus was meeting, talking with this woman. And then they come back and they see Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. And they marveled, it says. It means they were amazed at this. Not only because Jesus was a man talking to a woman in public. You say, well, what's the big deal there? Well, according to Jewish rabbinical teaching of the day, a man could not talk to a woman in public. So, A, that's socially unacceptable, okay? Then, then, there's also all these tensions between Jews and Samaritans that are compounding this. We talked about this two messages ago. The racial prejudice between the two, the religious prejudice between the two. So it's totally unacceptable for them to be speaking. And But notice the disciples. Hey, loved ones, put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Have you ever walked into a really awkward conversation? Here's the It's like, hey, we got the... Bread? And no one dares ask him, like, what are you seeking? What are you doing, Jesus? It's just like totally awkward on a whole number of levels. More bread? They're not asking him, but here in, here in verses 28 and 29, we see that um, right after Jesus declares he was the Messiah, back in verse 26... He declares he's the Messiah. We see here the woman's reaction. She leaves her water jar. Very significant. She leaves her water jar, goes back into town, and begins to tell the people all about Jesus. And she urges them. Can you hear the excitement? Come and see the man who told me all I ever did. Come and see him. Can this be the Christ? Now let's get some clarity here. She's not asking this question, can this be the Christ? To challenge the truth of Jesus as the Messiah. She's not saying, you know, this guy told me he was the Messiah, but do you think he could be the Christ? She's not asking like that. She's asking it in a different tone here. Leading them to him. She's asking in a way, like she's totally convinced that he's the Messiah and that she is saved. But she's asking the question to introduce them to a possibility they have never thought of before. Hey guys, hey guys, you know that Messiah you're thinking of? Hey, do you think this could be the Christ? You think this could be the Christ right here? You ever... You ever talk to your, you know, if you have kids or you have friends and you know something's a really good idea and, and, and you've been telling them for a long time and then they finally get to the point where they're like, yeah, I really, I think this is a really good idea. You're like, you think? That's what she's asking. You think this could be the mis- You think? He's right here. He told me all I ever did. No one can touch this. In verse 30, we see as a result of, look at this, as a result of the woman's witness about Christ, Many of the townspeople of Sychar come to see Jesus for themselves. Look at that. The town's on its way. Now live in the text, your loved ones. Put yourself in this woman's shoes. You have just had your life changed by Jesus Christ, and now you are leaving everything else behind that you were pursuing. Notice it says, I spent time this week just really praying into why did the Holy Spirit inspire to say she left her water jar behind? Why is that so important? She left her water jar in verse 28. Because it's a symbolism that the water of the world she realized was no longer satisfying her. And she was throwing off everything she was using to pursue the world with. She could pursue what Jesus was calling her to. It's a beautiful picture. It's a stunning picture. Water jar goes, that's not going to satisfy me anymore. Forget the well. I'm going with the living water. 
And she goes back. Notice where she goes. She goes back to the very people who up until this time have been rejecting her. Put yourself in her shoes. They've been rejecting you. They want nothing to do with you. They are shaming you. Why do you think she had to come to the well by herself in the hottest part of the day? No one wanted to hang out with her because of her immoral lifestyle. Five husbands and now living with a sixth man. No one wanted to be around her. It was a shame, considered unclean. And they're reviling you for your lifestyle of living in sin with all those men. Hey, listen, listen. Talk about courage. Would you want to do that if you were that woman? Go back to the very people who were isolating you and alienating you and hurting you. I think if we're honest, our flesh would respond, I'm not going to them. I got the greatest news of all time. They've been hurting me. I'm not going to them. I'm going to go to someone who I think deserves this message. I'm not going back. No way. They've hurt me too much. I'm not going to share with them. Don't you know what they've done? She puts her reputation on the line again by going to them. But here we see in this woman the first characteristic of four that are evident in a person who is living a life of invitation for Christ. Four characteristics of the invitational life. Number one, a life of invitation is a life of proclamation, not discrimination. It declares Christ to all. A life of invitation is a life of proclamation, not discrimination. It declares Christ to all. And we see here that this woman, in verses 28 to 30, she is not being the judge of who to share the gospel with or who she thinks will respond to it. She's not just going to say, well, those people have been rejecting me. They're not going to respond to me, so I'm not going to go to them. I'm going to try to find someone else. She doesn't discriminate, loved ones. She goes right back to those people. She shares it with all people, regardless of what has happened in the past, the hurt caused by them, or her fears of people, her fear of men. Will they do it again? Will they do it again? Or her previous feelings about them, or her reputation with them. She goes right back to them. She's not giving any excuses for who she thinks will or will not listen to her. Man, our hearts need to hear that this morning. We are not making excuses. Well, I would share, but they're so hard to me. I would share, but they've hurt me before. I would share, but I would share, but they've rejected me. They make fun. I would share. Don't discriminate with the gospel, loved ones. The gospel does not discriminate, and neither should we. Neither should we. Loved ones, she boldly declares, come and see the Savior. To all. It's not up for you and me, loved ones, to be the judge of who we think will respond to the gospel or whether we feel like sharing it to them or depending on how they've treated us. No, 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 no. The gospel is available for all and we are called to declare it boldly to all. So question, first question of the day, is your life characterized by proclamation or discrimination? Is your life characterized, is my life characterized by proclamation or discrimination of who you will or will not share the gospel with? Here are some examples to get us thinking about this to evaluate. Maybe it's that with that person you've shared it with before, but, but they won't listen. They've been rejecting you. And now you just say, well, I'm not going to do it anymore. Or the person who knows your past. Think about this. All these people, this woman goes back, they all knew her past. 
And so are you willing to go to those people who know your past, who see all the mess, who see the discouragement, who see the brokenness? Are you willing to go to them and risk being called a hypocrite? Are we willing to do that? Or how about this? Like this woman had zero credibility with the people she's going to. Zero. Or what about this, that person you're afraid to share it with? Are we discriminating in our proclamation of the gospel because we're afraid of being rejected by man? A fear of how that person will respond. How about this? Well, I can't share it to that person of a different race, a different life stage, a different ethnicity. I mean, I don't know what to say. We're just not in the same clique. We're not in the, what's the word for that now? We're not in the same tribe. Really, 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 really? Hey, hey, loved ones, loved ones, you might not think you can relate to them, but I guarantee you Jesus can. You might not think you can relate to them, but what do I have in common with that person? It doesn't matter. Jesus can relate to them quite well. And we are called to be instruments of proclamation, not discrimination. Or how about this one? That person, picture them right in your mind right now. That person who you think is the hardest and least likely person to ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. How about them? Are we discriminating? Well, they'll never come. I've got to go to someone who's more ripe, so to speak. Really? Jesus went to the one with zero credibility. The one who, in all of Samaria's mind, was the least likely to come to the Messiah. He goes to her. The gospel does not discriminate, neither should we. We are called to declare it to all. So question, who is that person God has put in your life that he's calling you to stop the discrimination and start proclamation? Who is that person? Think. Think, pray right now. Write their names down. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. Preach the gospel, loved ones, and use words because they're necessary. They are necessary. And you say, what do you mean? There's this saying out there, Attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but he didn't say it, so I won't even, you know, I just had to bump his rep a little bit. But here's the reality. There's a saying that says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Hey, loved ones, words are always necessary. You don't get to Jesus without words. Yes, and our proclamation should be backed up by a lifestyle of biblical integrity, absolutely. But you say, well, that's a big statement. How do you know? Romans 10. Hear the words of Romans 10, the call to evangelism, 14, 15, and 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, someone being a witness? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Loved ones, Jesus Christ has sent us. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Verse 17. So faith comes through hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Through the proclamation of Christ. Who's that person for you? Four characteristics of the invitational number life. Number one. It's a life of proclamation, not discrimination. Declares Christ to all. Number two. It's a life of satisfaction and not distraction. It desires God's will above all. Look at verses 31 to 
34. <clears throat> meanwhile, Jesus, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, after the Samaritan woman leaves, the disciples urge Jesus to eat after his long journey from Samaria or to Samaria from Judea. Now remember, that's about two and a half days walk. Okay, so it's been a long time. They're urging their teacher, their rabbi to eat. But he tells them, get this, he tells them he has food that is satisfying him that they don't know about. They don't know about it. And they think they're just not getting it. They're keeping on the literal plan. Utter confusion is happening in the camp because they think he's speaking of literal food. Verse 33, they said, has anyone brought him food? Where did he get this food? You think, they think he's talking about literal food. Isn't it cool? Just like the woman was thinking he was talking about literal water before. Now the disciples are thinking literal food. Interesting. Very cool. Love, love the Lord. And so he goes on to say that his food, his satisfaction is accomplishing the will of his father and completing the mission he has been assigned and nothing, not even physical hunger, is going to distract him from that. I love how John Calvin breaks this down and gives some clarity on it. You see it on the screen. By his example, Jesus shows us that the kingdom of God should have priority over all bodily comforts. Jesus' food was to accomplish the work his father gave him to do. That is the mission of his father. That work, what's the mission? To advance God's kingdom, to restore lost souls to life, to spread the light of the gospel, and to bring salvation to the world. That is our mission today, loved ones. It hasn't changed. This is what Jesus was hungry for and craving to see accomplished. Question, are you, am I, craving to see the mission of God accomplished in us and through us? Let's ask it this way. What is distracting you What are you hungry for more than the mission of God to advance his kingdom through you? What's the water jar you're still hanging on to that you're hoping to get filled by the water of the world to satisfy you? See, it's interesting. The very things we run to in this world for satisfaction are the very things that keep us from truly finding it because it is only found in him. So what is, what is distracting you, loved ones? What are you hungry for more than the mission of God to advance his kingdom? Here, let's get rolling. How about us as a church? This isn't just on an individual. This is a corporate level. So many churches living in mission drift, living distractedly right now. How about us for us as a church? Is, is our distraction just growing bigger? Is that it? I hope not. Just fill it all up. And then we will have arrived, and then we can, maybe it's pursuing comfort. Well, if I just didn't have to serve, and I just didn't have more people, just more comfort. Really, really? Are we distracted by that? Are we distracted by wanting ease? Advancing our name? Get it out there? Like we've got the line on how to do church? Is that what we're advancing, really? God help us. How about individually? Are we distracted in our jobs? 
How much more hungry are you to go after your job and to work extra hours than to see God's kingdom advanced in and through you and to your family and to those around you? Just look at your week. Just look at the calendar. Look at your schedule. It'll give you a good indication. I was very convicted by that in my own life this week. How about this? Maybe we take a good thing like family and we elevate it over the mission of God. Well, I'm going to put my family ahead of what God wants me to do here. And we make an idol out of that. Be careful, loved ones. It's so, good. It's so easy to take a good thing like that and flip it and put Jesus beneath it. Don't do that. Don't be distracted. How about this? Money. If I just get more money, then I'll have more freedom to serve. Really? How much is enough? Maybe control. If I can just control my calendar, if I can just control the outcome of situations, if I can just control this or my kids or this situation or how people treat me, then I'm somehow going to be satisfied in that. Won't happen. Drop the jar. How about this? Entertainment. Right here. I was so convicted the other day. I'm sitting on a couch. I just finished a meeting. I'm tired. I'm sitting on the couch. And my son, my three-year-old, or my four-year-old, he comes up and he starts talking to me. And I'm like, yeah, okay, Caleb, I got it. I got it. He's like, Dad, he puts his hand on my arm. He goes, I need you to put the phone down. I just said, and I started crying. I'm like, you are so right. He's like a four-year-old going on 20. <laughs> Dad, I just need you to put the phone down. Good call, man. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, the Lord will declare his praise. What about this? What about this? I'm distracted by being comfortable. I want to stay in my comfort zone. I won't go out to meet my neighbors. I won't go out to invest. I, I'm just going to stay in my little comfort zone. Or this, are we distracted by our reputations? Are we distracted by having a good reputation with people? Hey, loved ones, a heart that is increasingly satisfied in Jesus Christ is more concerned about reconciliation than our reputation. We are more concerned about the reconciliation of a lost and broken and separated people from Almighty God than we are about looking good in front of them. Think of this woman she wasn't concerned about her reputation at this point. She's like, I found the Savior. I need to go. I'm satisfied. Water jar is dropped. Let's go. So if that jar is your reputation, loved ones, lay it down. Let's be more focused on reconciliation. She's all in. We're called to be too. So what are you seeking satisfaction that's robbing you of finding it in God and his will, who is the true source of it? Hey, Bottom line is this, truth. We're called to satisfaction, not distraction. You'll see it on the screen. We are called to satisfaction, not distraction. Four characteristics of the invitational life. Number one, proclamation, not discrimination. We declare Christ to all. Number two, satisfaction, not distraction. We desire God's will above all. Number three, when, sat when our satisfaction is in doing God's will, here it is, we will live with urgency, not apathy. We recognize the fields are white. Look at, look at verse 35. Do, not, do you not say, Jesus says here, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. The fields are white for harvest. See, Jesus now emphasizes 
the urgency of which we are to share the gospel. He uses a farming picture here. We have to understand this, understand this, that crops in the Middle East, in Israel at this time, they were planted in November. They were planted in November. And this, this event that's happening where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and subsequently his disciples is happening in December or January. Okay? Because spring harvest came four months later in April. And so there, you see a picture of that. Now you notice, the, the reason why Jesus says the fields are white for harvest is because you look at the top of the wheat. When it's ready to be reaped, when it's ready to be harvested, the tops almost look white. And that's what he's talking of. The fields are white for harvest. And so here, here's what Jesus is saying here. He goes, do you guys think you need to wait for harvesting gospel fruit? Do you think you need to wait for four months? No, 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 loved ones, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. Look, look, and at this time, here come the people from Sakar, right? They're coming, because they're coming with this lady. He goes, just look at, look at, lift up your eyes. Look at the harvest. These were supposed to be your enemies. These were supposed to be the hardest people who would never find salvation in the Messiah, and they're coming. The fields are white. You thought they were beyond saving. He says, loved ones, I have come. There's no more waiting period for the harvest. The end times harvest is here. The end times started when Jesus came and it will finish when he comes again. He says, this is an end times harvest. It's here. Don't delay. I've prepared the hearts of those I am calling. Go after them. We are now the closest we've ever been in human history to the return of Jesus Christ. Go after them, loved ones. They may look hardened. They may look like they're the most unrealistic person to ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's not your role to judge or mine. Jesus sees the heart. And he says the fields are white. And if he says they're white, we need to listen. So question, does your life, does mine reflect a recognition that the fields around you are white? Does it? Does it reflect it by the amount of urgency we live with? Just think about it for a moment. Here, here's that picture. Now I want you, see all those wheat stalks there? I want you to do this. I want you to picture your neighborhood on that field right there. Orleans, Canada, Nepean, wherever you're from. Just pick, there's your neighborhood. How about this, students? Most of you have gone for reading week this week. But there's your classroom. Employees, there's your workplace. There it is. It's right there. Lift up your eyes. Look, look. Don't be distracted. Look. It's right there. There's your family. There's that extended relative that you think I've shared it with like 500 times and never come to the God. There she's in there. He's in there. The field is there. And it's up to God to decide who comes. But our job is to go. There's the grocery store you go to, right there. Because here's the truth. You say, well, how do you know we're called to this? Because here's, here's the reality. If you're not dead, God's not done. You and I are still here because the fields are white. And Acts 18 tells us there are many in this city who are still is and he's going after 
does your life, does mine, reflect the urgency to go after them? Loved ones, let's ask it this way. Does their eternal destination mean anything to you? Does it? Who has God put around you right now? And what are you waiting for? Don't be distracted. Be satisfied. The food, the will of God. That's why we're here. He's given us, each of us, a sphere of influence. Let's use it quickly. Lastly, four characteristics of the invitational life. Proclamation, not discrimination. Satisfaction, not distraction. Urgency, not apathy. Here's the last thing we see. Unity, not division. We rejoice. The invitational life will rejoice in sowing and reaping. Look at 36 to 38. Already, Jesus goes on to say, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. You see, Jesus now outlines the different roles. You see that? The different roles in faithful evangelism, describing how his people will both sow the seed of the gospel. That is, you're telling people about it. Some will sow at different times, and some will reap the harvest at different times of people who receive the salvation of Jesus Christ. So some will spend their time sowing, and then others will spend time reaping. And then they could swap. Like it's different times. It's different roles for different people. And he says in verse 7, or verse 37, notice here's the word send again. He emphasizes the mission. He says he's sending the disciples to reap the harvest that was not sown by them. He goes, you're stepping into that field that has already had seen sown for hundreds of years to prepare hearts to receive it. He says, but the laborers, not by you, the laborers, the ones who've been sowing, the ones who've gone before you. Who's he talking about? Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah was laboring. Isaiah was laboring. Malachi was laboring. They wish they could see the harvest that I'm sending you to. John the Baptist, he's speaking of here. Even Jesus himself, he's been sowing and sowing and sowing. And they can step into that. The disciples would be benefiting from that work and would bring a harvest of salvation from it. Now, notice in verse 36, though, what we have to see here is that this emphasizes this truth. One sows, one reaps. The lifestyle of evangelism is to be one of unified cooperation, not competition. The lifestyle of evangelism is to be one of unified cooperation in the body of Christ, not competition. The truth is this, the sower and reaper whose hearts are hungry for God's mission will be unified and rejoice together regardless of the role God uses them in at different times. You say, what do you mean by that? Let's illustrate this a little bit. You may be sowing seeds for years into the life of another and never see the harvest reaped. Parents, be encouraged. You may be leading your family in devotions and sowing seeds of God's word and sowing seeds through prayer in the lives of your kids and you may never see them come to Jesus Christ in your lifetime. You may never see it. Does that mean we're gonna just get all discouraged and not be faithful with continuing to sow? Maybe that's where God has you, sowing seeds. Maybe with your coworkers, like I've been sharing that for months, for years, nothing, nothing, nothing. 
Or maybe you'll be sowing seeds for years, and here's the other thing that happens. Sowing seeds for years, and you'll be saying the same thing that that child or that coworker, that person you've been sharing with goes and hears a podcast or something, and you're like, man, I just got rocked by the gospel, I need Jesus. And they give their life to him, and you're like, eh. It's like, I've been pouring it, I've been saying that for years. What do you do? Enjoy, rejoice in the sowing and the reaping. Why? We just love to be the reapers. Why? Because our flesh wants to take credit, and there's only one who deserves the credit. We just love to reap. Oh, I was there. I preached the message. I gave the testimony. When that person came to Christ, it's all me. Uh, Loved one, be very careful. Sow the seed. God will choose people to sow at different times and to reap. We are not, pride, pride loved ones, will always revile each other in competition. Humility will rejoice in cooperation. So it's not about how many butts in the seed can Harvest Bible Chapel Ottawa get. Mm-hmm, and reap, 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 reap. Our job is to sow when God says sow and reap when he says reap. And we rejoice that the fields are white and there's other faithful laborers there he's chosen. Only one deserves the credit. Question, are you living in unity of cooperation, not competition? Can you rejoice together? I pray so much for this church that way. Help us, Lord, because our flesh won't want us to stay there. We are called to evangelize for Christ by living a life of invitation to Christ. There it is. And what must underlie all of this, this life of invitation, because we can't do anything on our own, we must trust in the work of Christ. Final point today. We must trust in the work of Christ. And the question this truth confronts us with is this. Only God's power can save. Am I trusting in him? Only God's power can save. Am I trusting him? Look at 39 to 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. See, in verse 39, after hearing the woman's testimony declaring who Christ was and what he had done in her life, it says many came. The Greek word there for many, it's not like, hey, here's ten. It's like a a great multitude. We're talking about most of the city of Sychar is coming out now. That's amazing. And they believed in him. Greek word pistuo means they put their faith in him. Saving faith. Verses 40 to 42, we see not only this, but it multiplies. The Samaritans then ask Jesus, they get their lives rocked, and then they ask Jesus to stay with them, to preach and teach the word of God to them. The Greek word there for word is logos, the divine word of God. And then, as a result of that, many more of them believed. Now, not just based on God's work through the testimony of the woman, but straight from the word of God himself, Jesus Christ, and they declared he is indeed the savior of the world. Faithfulness, loved ones, be encouraged. Be encouraged today. Faithfulness is always multiplied. You may not see it. You may be just called to sow seed. Faithfulness is multiplied. Jesus Christ will see to it because it's his power that has to work, not yours or mine. 
He will see to that. I love this. Now think about what just happened here. There's a revival breaking out in Samaria. The place that was the armpit of Israel. There's a revival breaking out. This is incredible. Think about this. God didn't use, notice how he used this. We tend to think of evangelism as, okay, well, we'll book a stadium and then we'll give out pamphlets and then we'll organize this huge thing of all these folks. Listen, there's a time for that. I get that. But 99% of our evangelism for Christ is lived in the day-to-day. No question. It's with the people you're rubbing shoulders with every single day. Your kids, your neighbors, the lady at the grocery store, the teller at the bank, it's all there. Are we saying, come and see? God uses one woman. He didn't use some big evangelistic outreach for this. He said this. I'm taking the woman who's been shunned by everyone. I'm taking the one who's been shamed and isolated. I'm taking the one who's not a theologian. The woman didn't recite the Pentateuch to these people. She didn't even know it. She simply said, this is what Jesus has done in my life. Come and see. Come and see. God says, give me the person who will proclaim and not discriminate. Give me the person who is increasingly satisfied in me and not distracted from me. Give me the person who's living with urgency, not apathy. Give me the person who doesn't care who gets the credit. Give me them. And give me the one who's willing to trust in me for my work. Even when they feel unqualified. See, Jesus uses her little step of faithfulness of sowing a seed and making an invitation to reap a multitude of souls. Notice. She just told her testimony of what Christ had done in her life by his power. And God brings a revival to the city from the most unlikely person anyone would consider. You say, well, what does this look like to share the testimony? Take a look at the screen. Christian home with parents who loved the Lord. They nurtured my siblings and I in the word and taught us what it meant to live our lives as Christians. I was genuinely interested in living my life for the Lord. At least, that's what I told myself. Unfortunately, over time I lost interest and proceeded not to read my Bible anymore. It felt as though I had no desire to build my relationship with the Lord. I felt stagnant and uninterested in my faith. I believed, but I didn't live it out throughout my life. All throughout university, my relationship with my family was deteriorating rapidly. I was even lying to my parents about going to church. I told myself everything was fine, that I'd be happier living for my own pleasures and interests. However, I knew deep down that my life was slowly spiraling out of control. I was born in Canada, but originally from the Middle East. Growing up in a born-again Christian family, 
I've been going to church since a young age. I prayed and accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior as a kid with my mother. However, while growing up and being a teenager, I never felt I could really continue to obey God. I felt God was trying to get closer to me, but friends in the world were more exciting. Two years ago, during my move from overseas to Ottawa, my parents wanted me to be a part of a Christian community and family while I was away from home. I had different plans and expectations in mind. The whole church experience was not a priority for me. I enjoyed being with friends, enjoyed being free in the world. I didn't see the importance of attending a church service and didn't see any value of it in my life. After my parents left me in Ottawa alone, something made me feel I must attend church on Sundays. Frankly speaking, it was a bit hard because I was alone. I didn't see the importance and the impact a church and being with Christian believers could have on me until I started attending Sunday worship service. Based on your profession of faith, and your obedience to God's command, it gives me great, great pleasure to baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It was through this consistent encouragement and lots of prayer that brought me to make the decision to try living my life for the Lord again. Over the past few months, since choosing to rededicate my life to Christ, I feel like I now have a genuine sense of peace, joy, and optimism in my life. My relationship with my family has never been better, and I now look forward to spending time with them. For the first time in my life, I'm actually excited to go to church, and I have a genuine passion to read my Bible and learn more about God. My life and relationship with the Lord is stronger and more consistent now than it has ever been. Based on your profession of faith and your obedience to God's command, it gives me great, great pleasure to baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Something gave me the determination to come on Sunday mornings. Ever since coming, my faith in the Lord has grown drastically. I fully surrendered my life to Jesus Christ as my Savior and my life has changed for the better. I started coming every Sunday and I grew closer to God. I now start my week off with motivation and encouragement to spread Christ's love around me. I personally have never felt any happier than this. My relationship with the Lord has become way stronger. I've also experienced the Lord's miracles with my family. I know I'm saved by the blood of Christ because of his death on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. I know that I will be in heaven with the Lord. I therefore have decided to keep the Lord's commandments and get baptized today in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The slavery to sin that was over their lives is dead, and the new has come, the new person in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's give it up for the Lord's work. Amen. Loved ones, here's the truth that all of that points to it is this. You'll see it on the screen. Jesus is not looking for worthiness. He's looking for willingness. Are you willing? Edward Clink, commentator, said this. Our confidence for sharing the message of the gospel is that it's not dependent on our power our wisdom, or our strength. It rests solely on the power of God. We don't win souls. He does. It's not the quality of witness that matters, but the object of our witness. Are you willing to trust in the work of Christ? Are you willing?